Welcome to The Almost Forgotten, the podcast that looks at the lives of great historical figures who have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. In this episode, we finish telling the story of Alexander the Great's successors, the Diadochi. You're probably here because you've listened to the previous four episodes. If so, thanks for sticking with me. I hope you'll stay for the rest of the season as we do individual profiles. If you haven't listened to the previous four, well, this will probably be a little confusing for you. Maps and images from this episode can be found on the website almostforgotten.squarespace.com. If you have any questions, please send them to almostforgottenpodcast at gmail.com or find me on Twitter at the almost forgot. Without further ado, except for the theme song, it's time to conclude the series on the successors to Alexander. This is season two, episode five, the Diadochi, Seleucus, Ptolemy, and the end. And this is the Almost Forgotten. We took a look at the events surrounding the lives and times of the Diadochi, but in keeping with the overall theme of this podcast, we looked at five in particular who played significant roles. Three of those five, Perdiccas, Eumenes, and Antigonus, are gone. But Ptolemy and Seleucus have the opportunity to expand their empires after the Battle of Ipsus and the death of Antigonus. Ptolemy was absent from the battle in 301 BC, having been given false information that succeeded in keeping him away. At least, that's what he said. You never know with these guys. Seleucus, on the other hand, knew he had an opportunity, and he seized the moment. He had half of Antigonus' empire already from Babylon East, and defeating the old general would serve to give him much more. His actions were the decisive moves in the battle. His forces helped keep the Antigonid heavy cavalry, led by Antigonus' son Demetrius, from coming to the aid of the infantry. Leading Demetrius away from the battlefield, something that was possibly done by Seleucus' son Antiochus, may well have been exactly what their plan was and it was the ability to attack the Antigonid flanks with their own remaining heavy cavalry that allowed Seleucus and Lysimachus to destroy Antigonus's infantry and kill him. After the battle, Seleucus annexed Syria and Mesopotamia, greatly expanding his empire westward. Ptolemy kept Phoenicia, which he had already taken from Antigonus before the battle, and without any real naval force to speak of, Seleucus was in no position to challenge him there. Publicly, of course, they spoke that it was their friendship that made the border peaceful. To the west, Cassander gained nothing except the death of Antigonus, who had been trying to take Macedonia from him for a decade. Lysimachus, on the other hand, got all of western Anatolia, a huge prize, with perhaps the wealthiest cities in the Hellenistic world, with competition only from Babylon and Alexandria at that point. The Antigonids weren't off the stage yet and they were destined to remain a part of the program. Demetrius was still alive, holding on to a few islands, including Cyprus, and the strong navy that rivaled Ptolemy's Phoenician force. A quick aside, especially for fans of this podcast from the very beginning, at some point before the Battle of Ipsus, a maybe 80-year-old Persian nobleman who had survived Alexander's invasion, still holding his small satrapy in the city of Chios in northeastern Anatolia, 
was executed by Antigonus. Antigonus suspected he might have been ready to hand his city off to Lysimachus. This man's son, named Mithridates, was the same age as Demetrius and was serving as one of his lieutenants, and the two seemed to have grown up close friends. Demetrius warned his friend that he was next on Antigonus's execution list. Plutarch tells the story of how Demetrius was sworn to secrecy by Antigonus, but managed to warn Mithridates anyway. Quote, Demetrius was exceedingly concerned at the affair, but though his friend waited on him as usual that they might pursue their diversions together, he dared not speak to him on the subject because of his oath. However, he drew him aside from the rest of his companions, and when they were alone, he wrote on the ground with the bottom of his spear, Fly, Mithridates, unquote. Mithridates indeed fled east, no doubt with some loyal followers, until he came upon a fortress that they occupied. By 281 BC, he had established enough of a presence to name himself king. And that is the story of the founding of the kingdom of Pontus, which was eventually ruled by his descendant, Mithridates VI, Mithridates the Great, profiled in an earlier episode of The Almost Forgotten. He's also the guy whose face adorns the podcast on iTunes. Back to the end of the 4th century BC, after the Battle of Ipsus, Seleucus took some time to secure his new territory. In northern Syria, he did what all good dyadochi did. No, not murdering his rivals. What would make you think that? Alright, so he did the other thing that all dyadochi did. He founded new cities and named them after him and his family. Antioch was the largest of what was called the Syrian Tetropolis, a group of four city-slash-garrisons he founded in the region. Antioch became one of the most important cities in the ancient world and eventually was the center of Hellenistic Judaism. It was such a key setting for the emergence of the next big monotheistic religion, it is sometimes called the Cradle of Christianity. It is fair to say that Antioch and Alexandria, which had been Ptolemy's capital for about 20 years at this point, were the two most important cities in the eastern Mediterranean for the next three or four centuries, maybe more. This isn't to say that everything was all quiet and friendly after Antigonus' death. It didn't take long after the Battle of Ipsus for the Diatiki to start Diatikiing. Around 300 BC, Ptolemy approached Lysimachus and formed an alliance. This may have been to try and check Seleucus, who was now the guy who controlled almost all of Asia. Whenever someone controlled most of Asia, it usually didn't take them that long to start marching into Thrace or Egypt. But because of the alliance, Seleucus was suddenly isolated, and he needed help. So, without a big navy, remember Ptolemy controlled the Phoenician navy, Seleucus turned to the one man who could help him, Demetrius. Demetrius had made it to Athens, but the citizens there wanted nothing to do with him and wouldn't let him back in the city that had been his base of operations for the last few years. They claimed to be striving for neutrality, so they gave him back his warships that were docked in Piraeus. Rather than start a fight, he took his ships and he left. He still controlled some islands in the Aegean and a large naval force. Seleucus and Demetrius allied around 298 BC, and another set of partnerships looked like it might lead to war again. But a peace was brokered between the two maritime rivals, Demetrius and Ptolemy. Seleucus helped broker the peace, so no major fighting happened. 
An uneasy peace remained, with relatively little conflict, although with these guys there was always some conflict. In 298 BC, Demetrius attacked and conquered Cilicia, which, although in Seleucus's territory, had been given to Cassander's brother, Pleistarchus, as a reward for leading Cassander's troops in his brother's place at the Battle of Ipsus. Demetrius stayed there for a few years, growing his power and expanding his navy, all the while worrying his ally and now neighbor Seleucus. His rule there wasn't considered benevolent, and he faced the possibilities of internal strife, Seleucus changing his mind about the alliance, or even Lysimachus deciding to act upon him. So he abandoned the region in 296 BC and set up shop in Cyprus. Plistarchus had fled either to Cassander or Lysimachus's court. The sources conflict. His brother's court makes more sense, but he isn't mentioned in the struggle for power which ensued the next year. What struggle for power, you say? Well, in 297 BC, Cassander, who was quite ill, died. Cassander's eldest son and heir, Philip IV, died soon after. He was apparently very ill as well. So, two of Cassander's teenage sons, Alexander V and Antipater II, okay, he really should have been called Antipater I as far as kingliness goes because the original Antipater was never actually a king, but whatever, were given Macedon as joint rulers. They were actually half-brothers with different mothers, and I'm sure you can guess how this one turned out. But before that budding civil war in Macedon concluded, the following year, Demetrius had decided it was time to make his way back to Greece. He actually lost a bunch of ships in a storm on the way, but set about taking some smaller towns before turning his attention to his real target, his old stomping grounds that had kicked him out, Athens. By 295 BC, the besieger had besieged the city to the point of famine, and in April he captured it. At first he wanted to conquer the rest of the Peloponnesian Peninsula, and he did take some cities there, but before he could finish, the rivalry in Macedon came to a head. Cassander's widow, Thessalonike, supported her son, Alexander V, and the other boy, Antipater, had her killed. Thessalonike also happened to be Alexander the Great's half-sister, a daughter of Philip II. So Alexander V figured this might bring some friends to help defend him after his brother chased him out of western Macedon. Demetrius was one who went to help, but Pyrrhus, the king of Epirus, a territory to the west of Macedon, had been inserting himself into the Macedonian kingship discussion for a few years now, and he got there first. He reinstalled Alexander in the west, but stopped short of taking eastern Macedon from Antipater, possibly because of interventions of Lysimachus, who bordered his territory to the east. Lysimachus was Antipater's father-in-law, so perhaps that itself was enough of a threat. Either way, Lysimachus and Pyrrhus were probably both content to each have a border client kingdom, even if they were both pieces of Macedon in between the two of them. So when Demetrius caught up to Alexander, he was told, well, Actually, you know, Pyrrhus already came by, so I don't really need you anymore. Demetrius was all, hey, no problem, I didn't mind taking the trip up here anyway, and invited Alexander to a banquet, whereupon he had him killed. Demetrius then took Western Macedon for himself, 
and then marched into eastern Macedon around 294 BC and set himself up as king. Seeing what happened to his younger brother and not wanting to mess with Demetrius, Antipater II fled to Lysimachus' territory in Thrace. Lysimachus took him in for the moment, but did nothing to help him get his territory back. Lysimachus and Demetrius negotiated a peace, and Demetrius became the new king of Macedon. Lysimachus eventually killed off Antipater II, essentially ending the original Antipater's dynasty, although one nephew survived to sit on the throne for a few months before being chased off. While Demetrius was concerning himself with taking Macedon, Ptolemy was concerned with recovering Cyprus. Demetrius, if you recall, had taken the island for his father way back in 306. Ptolemy finally recovered the island in 294 and sent Demetrius' wife and other members of his inner circle safely to Macedon. Although Cyprus had changed hands a few times already, Antigonus, Ptolemy, and Demetrius had all held it previously, this time Ptolemy kept it, and it stayed in his kingdom until Cato the Younger annexed it for the Roman Republic in 58 BC. Ptolemy also took back the pieces of Phoenicia that Demetrius held, kicking his troops out of Tyre and at least one other city there, but Ptolemy was slowly getting out of the business of politics. By 289 BC, he named his son Ptolemy II as his successor, but this wasn't his eldest son. His eldest son was named Ptolemy Coranos and was the son of Eurydice, not the one we talked about before, but the one who was Antipater's daughter. Ptolemy Coranos was the result of one of those early dyadochi marriage alliances. But along with Eurydice came a woman named Berenike, her lady-in-waiting. She was a Macedonian noblewoman, and Ptolemy apparently fell in love with her as well, and made her one of his wives too. She gave birth to the boy, who would eventually become Ptolemy II. It's not clear why Ptolemy chose Berenike's son as opposed to Eurydice's sons as his heir, but in 285 he named him co-regent. Ptolemy Coranos, now a rival for the throne with his half-brother, was compelled to flee Egypt. In 283 BC, Ptolemy, Ptolemy I Soter, Ptolemy the Savior in English, finally died at over 80 years old. He and Berenike's son became Ptolemy II officially. Ptolemy had been careful in his decisions. Whether he pushed for Egypt or it was just given to him, it was the perfect spot for him. He was cautious in his dealings and alliances and rarely got involved directly in major conflicts outside of the Levant and the Mediterranean. Despite being cautious, he wasn't timid, as it was his actions that brought Alexander's body to Egypt, and he was really the first of the Diadochi to openly rebel against the new regime, even if he didn't explicitly state it. Ptolemy was also a patron of the arts, most famously Euclid. There are stories of Euclid and Ptolemy interacting, and Euclid wrote his 13-book treatise Elements, one of the most important textbooks ever written while living in Alexandria. And Ptolemy built the famous Library of Alexandria, one of the greatest collections of books in the ancient world. It was actually part of a larger complex that functioned as a learning center where scholars could gather, a sort of university. He helped turn Alexandria and Egypt, founded by his former king, into one of the most important cities of the ancient world. 
an urban center comparable only to Antioch in that part of the world. According to Diodorus Siculus, writing in the last half of the last century BC, quote, Many reckon it to be the first city of the civilized world, and it is certainly far ahead of all the rest in elegance and extent and riches and luxury. The number of its inhabitants surpasses that of those in other cities. At the time when we were in Egypt, those who kept the census returns of the population said that its free residents were more than 300,000 and that the king received from the revenues of the country more than 6,000 talents, unquote. With Ptolemy's death, only Lysimachus and Seleucus were left among the original group of the Diatoche. Demetrius had taken Macedon, but by this point, he had stopped being much of a problem to them. Demetrius had spent so much time wandering outside his new Macedonian territory, trying to take places like Athens again, that his neighbor Pyrrhus of Epirus kept attacking his kingdom. Around 288 BC, a few years before Ptolemy's death, Pyrrhus and Lysimachus forced him out of Macedonia and split it up. Eventually, Lysimachus took the kingdom from Pyrrhus for himself. Demetrius's next move was to try and retake western Anatolia from Lysimachus in 287 BC. Lysimachus sent his son through Antipater's daughter, Agathocles, to defend it. Demetrius took the southwestern satrapies of Lydia and Caria, but Agathocles began to take the cities back from his uncle Demetrius, who was forced further east into Asia Minor. So Demetrius decided to just keep going east and take on Seleucus's massive empire. But his men began deserting him, and his forces dwindled. Seleucus didn't engage him at first, and instead watched as his army melted away. Eventually, the two forces did face each other down. Seleucus walked in front of Demetrius's force without a helmet on, and when they saw the face of one of the Diatoche, the men realized he was giving them an opportunity to save themselves. They refused to fight and handed Demetrius over to him. Demetrius became Seleucus's prisoner, and Lysimachus demanded his execution. But Seleucus held on to him, probably just in case he could use him later on. Demetrius didn't last very long, though, and he died in 283 BC. Meanwhile, Agathocles, son of Lysimachus, became quite popular in Asia Minor, thanks to ending Demetrius's onslaught in the region. It seemed that he had sort of built himself an independent kingdom and even minted his own coins. It's possible that he planned a rebellion against his father, who hadn't named him as his heir yet. Or it might have just been court intrigues that spread false rumors of that happening. Ptolemy's daughter and Ptolemy II's sister, Arsinoe, was queen there. It seems that if it was simply court intrigues, she might have been involved in implicating Agathocles. We have no idea if an actual battle occurred, but by about 284 BC, Lysimachus had captured Agathocles and had him executed. To confuse the situation more, Ptolemy Caranos was also involved in this circus. When he had fled Egypt, he wound up in Lysimachus's court. Arsinoe was his half-sister, and he may not have had much love for her, but his full sister was married to Agathocles. 
She, along with Karanos and some of the other leaders from the cities in western Anatolia, fled, not west, but instead east, to Seleucus. Whether this implicates Agathocles in conspiring with Seleucus or not is not at all clear. But if Seleucus wasn't planning on doing anything before, an entire region in turmoil got him going. In 282 BC, Seleucus marched into Anatolia, and by early 281, he was taking cities from Lysimachus. Included in this was the extremely wealthy and seemingly impregnable city of Pergamum. Philoterus, the commander of the city under Lysimachus, was presumably one of those leaders outraged by the death of Agathocles, or he was just seizing an opportunity. Whatever his motivation, he went to Seleucus and offered help and money, as long as Pergamum could be an independent kingdom once the fighting was over. Seleucus agreed, and the client kingdom of Pergamum was established, which survived a century until it was bequeathed to Rome, something that Mithridates the Great of Pontus used as one piece of evidence that the Romans were always doing something shady. Interestingly, Ptolemy II, now king of Egypt, did not come to the aid of his ally Lysimachus. Seleucus and Lysimachus met near Sardis in 281 BC. We don't have many details of the battle, but Memnon of Heraclea writes, Quote, By murdering his son, Lysimachus justly earned the hatred of his subjects. So Seleucus, on learning about this and how easily the kingdom could be overthrown, now that the cities had revolted against Lysimachus, joined battle against him. Lysimachus died in this war after being struck by a spear which was thrown by a man from Heraclea named Malicone, who was fighting for Seleucus. After Lysimachus's death, his kingdom was merged as part of Seleucus's kingdom, unquote. Seleucus now was in the position of Perdiccas and Antigonus before him. He had all of Asia and had the forces and the money to reunite the empire by taking Europe and then Egypt. But he had even more. He also had Lysimachus's territory of Thrace and the recently conquered Macedon. He crossed the Hellespont and made his way into Thrace, the original kingdom of Lysimachus, now ripe for the taking. In his entourage was Ptolemy's oldest son, Ptolemy Coranos. Ptolemy Coranos, the grandson of Antipater through Ptolemy's first wife Eurydice, saw an opportunity now that Lysimachus was out of the way. So, in the second half of 281 BC, he murdered Seleucus. Coranos then rushed west to claim the throne of Macedon. In Asia, Seleucus's son Antiochus held the empire together, but it wasn't without problems. He probably would have liked to march right across the Hellespont to confront his father's murderer, but he had to solidify his territory, so instead the two made peace. Antiochus had to deal with revolts in Syria and invasions in Anatolia, but he managed to keep the empire intact. Ptolemy Coranos, on the other hand, held Macedon and Thrace for only about two years before being killed trying to drive off an invading army of Celts or Gauls in 279. The region entered a brief period of chaos with several different kings. The Antipatrid dynasty, the patrilineal descendants of Antipater and Cassander, 
wrested it back briefly. But Demetrius's son, Antigonus's grandson, Antigonus II, also known as Antigonus Gonatus, tried to invade Macedon in 278. He failed. He was defeated in the battle. But in 277 BC, he happened upon an army of nearly 20,000 Gauls in Thrace and was able to ambush and completely rout them. As they had wandered around much of the Balkan Peninsula for the previous two years, sacking the countryside, Antigonus II was now a bona fide local hero. He was quickly able to gain the throne of Macedon, and he kept it, with a few interruptions here and there, for more than 40 years until he died in 239 BC, solidifying Antigonid rule in Macedon until the Romans came along. By the time Antigonus Gonatus became king, the sons of Seleucus and Ptolemy, Antiochus I and Ptolemy II, had already been installed as the leaders of their father's realms. Their fathers introduced stability that would be carried on for a century. Ptolemy II ruled for nearly 40 years. He lived until 246 BC and passed the kingdom on to his son, Ptolemy III, who ruled for two decades himself until 222 BC. In Asia, Seleucus's son Antiochus I ruled for two decades, as did his son Antiochus II, and his son Seleucus II, who reigned until 225 BC. Both empires had been set up not just to rule over a subject people with the unbeatable Macedonian armies. They were set up to rule as functioning governments. In Dividing the Spoils, Robin Waterfield writes, quote, Neither Ptolemy nor Seleucus was ever quite a despot, and their power was diffused through the hierarchical structures beneath them. Nor were they simply bandits. They took thought for the future and wanted their sons and grandsons to succeed to functioning and profitable kingdoms after them, unquote. But they were strangers and had to keep their people content or risk internal upheaval. Ptolemy had an Egyptian kingdom with a strong, deep, historically important culture, but it was only one culture. Seleucus ruled over many peoples and cultures, although most were content under the Achaemenids, so he could rely on some of their methods. Waterfield continues, quote, Ptolemy's kingdom comprised about 23,000 square kilometers, 8,880 square miles, and a population of about 4 million. Seleucus's, at its largest extent, occupied over 3,750,000 square kilometers, about one and a half million square miles, and had a population of about 15 million. The immigrant population was never more than 10% in either kingdom. They were heavily outnumbered, and so they took more radical measures to avoid displeasing at least the more powerful among the native population, unquote. The immigrant populations he's writing about is, of course, the Macedonians and Greeks. These two states remained the largest empires in that part of the world for another century and a half. A little after 250 BC, 30 years after Seleucus's death, the provinces of Bactria and Parthia seceded from his empire. Bactria became what is known today as the Greco-Bactrian Kingdom. It expanded to places such as Fergana, Sogdiana, and Aracosia before it was displaced by migrating Uaji tribesmen who came from the northeast. But more on that in a few weeks. Parthia also broke off and eventually grew to conquer much of the old Seleucid Empire, although that was still some time away. 
In 200 BC, a century after the Battle of Ipsus, the Seleucid Empire and the Ptolemaic Kingdom still ruled over much of what Alexander had conquered. The Ptolemaic Kingdom still stretched from Cyrene through Egypt to Phoenicia and held on to Cyprus and southwest Anatolia. The Seleucid Empire ruled southeast Anatolia, including Cilicia, through Syria and Mesopotamia, and despite the loss of Parthia and Bactria, south of those satrapies it still ruled out to near the Hindu Kush mountains. But at this point the size of the territory belied their overall health. Both had been beating each other up for the last 75 years in what is known as the Syrian Wars. This series of six back-and-forth conflicts was mainly over the territory south and east of what was called Syria at the time, which contained Antioch and the rest of the Syrian Tetrapolis. It was also east of the coastal territory of Phoenicia, in what was called Coel Syria in antiquity. It contained the cities of Damascus and Palmyra. This wasn't the only battleground, of course, and at times the kingdom of Macedon was involved with these battles as well. The six wars occurred over the course of a century from about 275 BC until 168. Over this time, the Ptolemies became less powerful and were dealing with revolts at home. The Seleucids had a revival under Antiochus III, known as Antiochus the Great. Resting Phoenicia from the Ptolemies around 217 BC, he was unable to hold on to it, although he did finally take it in 198 BC. He also put down rebellious satrapies in Asia Minor, eventually turned eastward and reconquered some more satrapies in the east, and eventually made his way to India. He then started looking towards expansion into Greece. But by this time, the Romans were marching west, right towards them. First, they took on Philip V, king of Macedon and great-great-grandson of Antigonus Monophthalmus. They defeated him in 197 BC and showed the superiority of Roman legionary weapons and tactics over the Macedonian phalanx and continued eastward with Macedon effectively a client state. In 192 BC, they battled with Antiochus the Great, who framed this conflict as a war of Greek independence from Roman domination, something a king in northern Anatolia named Mithridates would do a century later. By 188, the Seleucids had been routed, and Antiochus had to negotiate a peace with Rome, who took everything in Anatolia west of the Taurus Mountains for itself and its allies, leaving the Seleucid Empire with Cilicia as its westernmost province. Soon after that, the empire descended into civil wars. The Parthians took over not only Parthia, but Persis, Media, and pretty much all of modern-day Iran, while the kingdom of Judah under the Maccabees had established at least nominal independence themselves by 140 BC. By the 1st century BC, the empire only ruled over northern Syria, including Antioch. Tigranes the Great of Armenia, Mithridates' ally, invaded and conquered the remnants of the empire, although it was revived briefly when Tigranes was defeated by the Roman general Lucullus in 69 BC. Once Rome returned east, destroyed the kingdom of Pontus, and subdued Tigranes, it was really over. Pompey decided to make Syria a province of Rome, and in 63 BC, the once great empire, which hadn't been so for over a century, finally ended for good. 
In Egypt, the Ptolemies defeated Antiochus the Great's 219 to 217 BC invasions, but they quickly went into decline after that. One of their solutions to beat Antiochus was to finally arm and train native Egyptians as phalangites, that is, turn them into effective phalanxes. Soon after that external threat was turned away, they, unsurprisingly, began to face effective internal rebellions. Native revolts kept the kings busy and weak. At the dawn of the 2nd century BC, they lost most of their Phoenician possessions to the Seleucids in the 5th Syrian War and the ongoing conflict with Antiochus the Great. They also lost much of their Mediterranean possessions to Philip V and the resurgent Macedonian kingdom. In the face of Rome's march eastwards and its steamrolling of the other empires of the Diadochi, the Ptolemies aligned themselves with the growing republic. But it didn't do much to save them. In 170 BC, the Seleucids invaded Egypt and installed a king, which led to further civil war. A century later, the Ptolemaic kingdom in Egypt was nominally independent, but was really a puppet state of the Roman Republic. When Ptolemy XII died, his children, Ptolemy XIII and Cleopatra VII, ruled over the kingdom. But a civil war began brewing between the two. It just so happened that a Roman general named Julius Caesar was passing through Egypt on his way to defeating all his rivals in Rome's own civil war. He stayed and became involved in the Ptolemaic conflict, siding with Cleopatra and defeating Ptolemy XIII. Cleopatra was allowed to rule the kingdom and did so for a time, until 30 BC, when her husband Mark Anthony was defeated by Octavian, she killed herself, and Roman forces took Alexandria, turning Egypt into a Roman province. The Diadochi and their successors maintained Alexander's empire for more than a century and a half after his death. It was never really united, and it certainly was never the fully integrated Greco-Persian amalgam that he wanted. But each succeeded in its own way, thanks to the military strength of the Macedonian forces and the governments that the Macedonians set up. Each of the Diadochi had a unique story, but some were more remarkable and influential than others. A few started their own empires that lasted generations. Others played key roles in the fall of Alexander's empire and the rise of the successor states. Perdiccas was the first to rule the empire after Alexander, but could not hold on to his power, and every move he made seemed to backfire before his men finally killed him to save themselves. He was ambitious, but he constantly overstepped, inducing the ire of his fellow Diadochi, and he made things worse for himself every step of the way. In the end, trying to emulate Alexander without his former master's brilliance did him in. Eumenes was perhaps the unlikeliest of all of them, a Greek bookkeeper with no military experience until maybe a year before Alexander's death. He never ruled more than a small Anatolian satrapy, but he fought for what he saw as the rightful heirs to Alexander. He wound up being a great general and had opportunities to unite the remaining Perdican loyalists in Anatolia as well as the eastern satraps to finally defeat Antigonus. But each time he had chances to take control, and perhaps become the regent to the kings, he was betrayed until he was finally captured and killed. Antigonus was older than the rest, one of Philip's companions, and might have been left with the unglamorous but necessary job of watching Alexander's supply lines in Anatolia 
because Alexander knew just what Antigonus was, extremely competent, but even more ambitious. More than just an able general, he was calculating and cunning, and often seemed to step ahead of his rivals. For a much longer time, he held as much power as Perdiccas had, and was constantly trying to expand this power, but he died at the age of 80, trying to reach even further and set up a united empire for his son Demetrius. Ptolemy was one of the original bodyguards of Alexander and survived almost as long as Lysimachus, although Ptolemy was older and died peacefully in charge of a kingdom rather than in battle defending it like Lysimachus. He was not the most talented general compared to the other Diatoki, but he was intelligent and he knew how to take advantage of the situations he was given. He left a well-run kingdom with relatively clear boundaries, which set up a century of wars along his borderlands rather than inside his heartlands. And his, for all the influence the Romans had over him, was the longest surviving of the Diatoki's empires. Seleucus was not in the true upper echelon of generals at Alexander's death, but his support of Perdiccas allowed him to gain in position until he eventually became satrap of Babylon. He used this position to take advantage of a somewhat ignored eastern half of the empire and eventually took control of all of Asia. As soon as he had the kind of power that Perdiccas and Antigonus had, he was killed trying, like them, to push it even further. But, like Ptolemy, he was able to set up an empire built upon the ones before it that lasted for many generations after him. Philip II turned Macedon, a small kingdom considered too barbaric to be taken seriously, into the strongest power in Europe and subjugated Greece. Alexander conquered the Persian Empire in the span of a decade, expanding his empire to half of the known world. But as soon as he died, the relative order of the Greek and Persian worlds fell completely apart. The Diatoki tried to pick up the pieces and create their own worlds. In their wake, they left civil wars, destruction, and a new Hellenistic world. It was they who cemented the next 200 years as the Hellenistic period, and their stories, the stories of the Diatoki, are worth remembering. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed hearing the stories of the Diatoki as much as I enjoyed learning about it and telling it. And if you did enjoy it, I hope you stick around for the upcoming episodes. They'll go back to the format of one almost forgotten individual and his or her story per episode. It may take me an extra week to get the next episode out. I've been thinking about and learning about and writing about and talking about the Diatoki since about three months ago, so I'll have to shift my mindset to the new topics. But in the next episode, we will turn our focus east to someone who actually encounters one of the successor states to the successor states and writes about it. So thanks again for listening, and I hope you come back and join me next time on The Almost Forgotten.